World Prematurity Day is observed on the 17th of November each year to raise awareness of preterm birth and the concerns of preterm babies and their families worldwide. Approximately 15 million babies are born preterm each year, accounting for about 1 in 10 of all babies born worldwide. We're very, very pleased to welcome Nicole Kanan as our guest for today. And Nicole and I share a space sometimes at the Infant Mental Health Groups. And Nicole is a counselling psychologist with over 13 years of clinical experience. She has a special interest in working with infants, young children, as well as their families. She has developed courses, trained and supervised other professionals in this area, and is currently completing her PhD, which focuses on developing relationships between premature infants and parents in the NICUs. She is the chairperson of the Gauteng Association for, for Infant Mental Health. So welcome, almost Dr. Nicole. Lovely to be here. Thanks very much for coming. So just to start the conversation, to paint a context for the things that we use to mitigate and preserve infant mental health, one thing we are trying to get across is what we call in preconception attachment. So the idea that thinking about your children before they're conceived is important. Right. I think, and I think that's not just, I mean, you're talking about thinking about mothers, thinking about infants thinking about babies and children before they conceive but I think actually what you're really saying is all those supporting moms mm. need to be helping and guiding them towards thinking about what it means when they're pregnant what it means through their pregnancy and then once they have a baby you know um, what's the state of their mental health and 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 how best can they take care of their baby so I think it's much broader than just moms being able to think about it it's all the professionals around them kind of helping and guiding them through that Absolutely, because I think that the one thing about pregnancy is everybody looks at it as this blessing. When, when people fall pregnant, oh, it's such a blessing and it's so wonderful. And for, and for some parents, that is not the case. And I think the expectations of the pregnancy from the time of conception through to, um, through to giving birth is massive. So what do we do during the pregnancy phase to assist people with realistic expectations of what a pregnancy looks like? Well, I think first just to say, I think society does mothers such a disservice because they paint this picture that motherhood is such a fantasy and it's cuddly and all these pictures on social media of moms immediately loving and bonding their babies. And actually, the reality is quite often far from that. You know, sometimes it's not, you know, there can be a lot of ambivalence, which is normal and often isn't given a voice. You know, it's normal for moms to have doubts, anxieties. Do I really want this? Am I going to be able to do this? And I think that, that then what happens is that when they have those feelings, it creates guilt and then we don't talk about it. We can only talk about, oh, I'm so excited and this is what I'm doing. But I think the first thing is we have to start conversations that say, actually, that's normal. It's normal to have questions. And actually, if it then crosses a boundary into, I think I might be in trouble here, to encourage moms to seek support. Absolutely. And I think that w when we look at when people conceive, whether that's planned, unplanned, combinations of the both, is that there is an expectation of what your child will be. So there's almost like a birth in mind before there's a birth in the body. And when something like prematurity steps in, there's, there's a needing to realign and readjust those expectations, particularly because prematurity comes with a variety of potential long-term consequences to children's development. So what does it mean to have a premature child? I think it's such a complicated thing because 
Remember, not only is your baby premature, not only is your baby kind of coming to the world earlier than its body kind of was ready for, but I think one forgets that the, the, a mom goes through a nine-month pregnancy where she gets ready psychologically for her baby, and that too gets cut short. And so often, you know, moms are not ready psychologically anyway, right? And now they've got the added complications, the traumas, there's often prematurity often comes with traumatic births. You know, the, the, the worries about, is my child going to live? And I think that it then is very, very difficult for moms to kind of, and dads, I mean, I don't want to leave dads out, but it's very difficult for parents to then make sense of, what does this mean? How do I take care of my baby? And if you remember also, there's that initial time that parents have of connecting those first few cuddles and loves that they get robbed of. And I think all of that sets up the potential for quite a challenging start that may need to be mediated at some point. So I think those are my two primary things we want to land. What are the mental health challenges that we need to mitigate as well as the developmental challenges we need to mitigate with prematurity, both for the parenting as well as for the child? You've hit the nail on the head. It has to be for both. So look, I think what we know is that it, it depends very much on the moms. So some moms, even when they go through incredible trauma, they manage, you know, they manage it um, in a kind of good enough way, let's say, right? And it's not overly traumatic and they have sufficient support. But I would say that any mom with a kind of predisposition towards depression, anxiety, any mom with a kind of history of trauma of any sorts is going to be more at risk. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you add on the trauma of the birth, the trauma of having a baby who's really not well, and we know that the sicker the baby, um, the longer the baby's in the NICU, obviously the more at risk for mom's mental health as well. So that has to be, I think the first, the most important thing is is um, kind of identification, that doctors need to be aware and noting moms that are either hypervigilant, not coming to see their baby, which I think moms get dismissed as being, you know, that's a bad mom, she's mm -hmm. not caring, but actually it could be a sign of a mom that's really struggling. Absolutely. So the first point for me is how do, we, how do we identify those moms who are at risk? And I'm only saying moms because most of the time they're the primary caregiver. Sure. Um, and I think the second piece that's much less understood is that babies that come into the world early have lower thresholds of what they can manage. They're often more sensitive. They're often more difficult to parent. Um, you know, they're, they're often a little bit more fussy. And then you add to that that they've often had a very hard start. Mm -hmm. They don't get the cuddles and loves. They often have very painful procedures, needles, um, you know. And, and I think that by the time that baby then goes home, you have a child that's often much more niggly, much more fussy, and that that is also needing mediating experience. And so for me, Often what's needed is to help parents understand how do you recognize things like when your premature baby is getting distressed, before they get into a full-blown kind of hysteria mode. What are the ways in which premature babies can be calmed and soothed? And sometimes they're just very basic techniques. And I think that, you know, for example, the kangaroo care, which has been a huge amount of research, and it sounds so basic, but it's been shown to be very, very effective, the deep pressure, the heartbeat of the mom, those kinds of things are so important for parents to know and understand, because otherwise what you have is a mom that is a little bit at risk, and she's traumatized, and she's struggling, taking home a baby that's mm -hmm. more vulnerable, mm -hmm. and often it's, it's, it's kind of chaos that then ensues, when actually it doesn't have to be that way. And parents can be supported in terms of their mental health. And I've really found that if they are then helped to find, you know, how to recognize the distress cues, how to calm and soothe a more fussy baby, 
it just can change the whole trajectory. And I think that's that's what's often missing in the in the kind of experience. It's often about save the baby's life. You know, we've got to keep baby alive. Mm. We've got to keep baby healthy. And I, I think sometimes doctors miss that there's this whole other piece that then they send the baby home and who's helping parents to mediate and manage? Mm. So important because there's nothing more scary than taking your first baby home. You, you're so out of your depth. You don't know this tiny little thing that just screams, as we said earlier, you, you've been waiting nine months. Everyone is so excited and celebrating and it's really so scary. Nicole, what is considered preterm? When is a baby preterm? What's interesting, I think kind of medically, doctors would say before 37 weeks is preterm, would be kind of considered. But one of the things that I've noticed is that babies that are born before 40 weeks are often a little bit more fragile. So they're not medically preterm, but often, you know, the sucking reflex hasn't developed to the full extent or they're still just a little bit more sensory or niggly. And that's also helpful for parents to know and understand. Um, you know, but that they may have, it may be a little bit harder. They may have to be a little bit more protective of those babies if they're more sensitive. But, but I mean, I think preterm generally is kind of before 37 weeks. And obviously the earlier, the more preterm, the more vulnerable the baby. Mm. Yep. And you mentioned a very interesting and important thing for me is that there's actually a fourth trimester that people don't talk about. And the fact that we as humans actually give birth to premature babies by default because we had to stand upright and become bipedal and narrow our birthing canals and, and so on. So those, that, that, that fourth trimester, those, that additional three months, require a little bit extra connection because that's the time when people are most susceptible to postpartum depression. Babies are more likely to be shaken because parents get so frustrated they don't know what to do with them. So even if a baby is not premature, we have to recognize that there's a huge level of fragility, particularly with neural pruning, attachment connectedness, mm-hmm. in that time after the trauma, I mean, any birth can be, well, is traumatic to a woman's body hormonally, and that there needs to be that adjustment and that, um, well, I think, you know, psychoanalytically, it's that co-regulation. Mm-hmm. So what are the big things in the fourth trimester we need to be dealing with? I think we've touched on some of them. I think I think the, the, the biggest piece for me is in order for moms to be able to support their babies, they need support themselves. And I think that is a massive piece. Um, you know, whether whether it's and whether it's enough to just have family and friends, or sometimes medication might be required. Sometimes I think there's a lot of shame at times for moms feeling that they oh, need a psychologist. I mean, I can tell you, sorry, I'm digressing a little bit, but I know that by the time someone's landed with me, they've seen everyone else and I am the last straw. And by that stage, they are desperate because there's, there seems to be the stigma around moms, you know, not coping, not getting it right. So for me, the biggest piece is support for moms. And, and I think that it's also to understand that the first three months for a baby, the main goal for babies is, can I feel in control of my environment? And I think that, that it's the job of a parent to work out what does that mean and what are my baby's strengths and where their vulnerabilities and, and how can I support where they're vulnerable. So I'll give you a silly example. Some babies are born um, with a very strong motor system, okay, which means they've got really good control of their arms and legs. And that can be, I mean, I was working in the Caesar ward at Rahima Musa and some babies literally come out and they're absolutely confident in the way that they can move their arms and legs. Those babies don't necessarily need to be swaddled, for example, if that's not, you know. Other babies come out and they are very insecure in how they can move their arms and legs. They don't have that control as yet. 
those babies need to be tightly swaddled, otherwise the world feels like an insecure place. It's those kind of small things that if parents are helped to understand, you know, some babies can go to bed, fall asleep with a light, the, the windows open and the, your brother's screaming and shouting and it doesn't make a difference. Other babies struggle. And, and those are not, you know, your more sensitive babies, for example, can't be passed from person to person, can't be taken out all day and kept out, uh, you know, um, can't be, um, you know, spoken loudly or have loud noises. And very often your premature babies fall within that mm. category. They need time for the brain to mature. They need time for the central nervous system to mature. And just having that little bit of knowledge. And I think, you know, they talk about a dance that happens mm. between between moms and babies and I think when the dance goes right it's a good fit whatever mm. mom's doing is meeting the needs of baby and baby's feeling safe and secure and sometimes they, when there's not a good fit that's when you have things like colic and again I'm not, I'm not blaming moms at all but sure. I'm saying often it's a, a lack of understanding you know it's a baby who's now very dysregulated not being soothed and calmed and I think for me, that's, that's one of the things is, is when people say, oh, which, which, which um, you know, what's your um, theory of, of what babies need? Um, you know, um, and I always think it's, there's not one theory. It's about who's my baby and, and actually, you know, what does my baby need? Because if my baby's more robust, well, then actually I can go out and I can do my thing and, 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 and I don't have to be quiet and have the, door, you know, the doors and the windows shut. But if my baby's more sensitive, I might have to tweak what I'm doing. Mm. And you can also, um, if you have obviously more than one child, your children are very, very different. And you very often look at this, whether you've got two children or four children, and say, well, what is it? And I think babies are different. So it's actually not always or very often not about the mom or, or anything at all. It's just that as people, we are all different. And, and, and then you can come in with all the start. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, what's, what's known as a difficult baby may be just a more sensitive baby. But a more sensitive baby often makes moms, often make moms doubt themselves. They feel that they're incompetent. They feel that they don't know what they're doing. And it's a complete reframe to say, well, actually, no, you just have a baby that might need a little bit of extra support rather than you don't know what you're doing. You know? Let's talk about judgment, because I think the big thing is anybody who's had a baby, very often or you, you have your new baby and everyone's got an opinion. So you must either let the baby cry or you must only have natural birth or you must only breastfeed. There, there are all of these judgments that, that people pass on to you. And for me, it was so important to say, all I want is a healthy baby. However that baby's born doesn't matter. And if I'm able to breastfeed, it's great. And if I'm not able to breastfeed, it's great. How, as moms, do we park that judgment and say, I'm the mom and I'm going to do the very best I can for my baby. It's often not a simple thing to do. Um, but, but it I, gets easier as you're older. You oh, see, I can, sure. and my babies are now 22, so now you know I've, I've got all the wisdom of hindsight. Absolutely. And I mean, I see friends of mine now that are having babies in their 40s and they're very different moms. It's mm. like, you're not going to tell me what I need to do. I, and there's a confidence. But often younger moms or moms that feel more insecure about their ability to moms, you know, they're much more at risk of, being criticized, taking it to heart, and it's very damaging. Even subtle remarks can be incredibly damaging to a mom, make her feel incompetent. 
and I think very often well meant by oh, mom or sure. my, you know when when my babies were little I would do x y and z and 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 that is that can be so damaging for sure because all the mom's hearing is well you're not doing it right especially when you have a baby that's very colicky that doesn't settle easily and then everyone's got an opinion about why it's your fault why you're not doing it right what I would say to moms is find people that speak to you mm that speak to your way of mothering that and, and surround yourself with people that make you feel good about the mother that you are. Uh, I think that's so important, you know, and, and, and it's okay to put boundaries and say, no, actually, I don't want to do it that way. Um, I know, for example, breastfeeding, we know the benefits, we know how important it is, but some moms just don't want to mm-hmm. breastfeed. And I always think I would much rather have a happy mommy holding onto a bottle, feeding her baby, then a depressed mother who feels she has to breastfeed and it goes against everything she's comfortable with. Mm. Too right. So I think just in, in sort of wrapping up, because I think what we, we're trying to do is send some kind of, you know, sort of real take-home messages. And the two things, I mean, we, we, we've often, in the, even in this conversation, you know, mother has been core and we've even said, oh, no, I'm not excluding dads and <laughs> so on. And I think what for me dads need to hear is that their bonding, I mean, I often hear from fathers who come to me, particularly with prem babies, they're scared they're going to hurt them. Mm. So there's, there's this level of twitch, they're fragile and my hands are, I mean, the one father said to me, my hands are too big, look at them, look at the baby, I'm going to break it. You know, so I think there's a level at which dads need to hear what bonding is about and the paternal function, which you and I have spoken about many, many times, and that it is a different function, and then the role of the mother and how you maintain the balance with that role and being a woman. Because often when you become a first mom, everybody, you're suddenly not a partner anymore, you're not a lover anymore, you're not a daughter anymore, you're a mother. And that role almost like engulfs you at some level. And when things go wrong in that, it's quite difficult to maintain your identity as a woman. So if you just talk to those maternal, paternal roles as your kind of take-home messages for parents. Right. I think I, I, it's interesting you talk, you talk about maternal and, and, and paternal, mm. you know, in some of the psychological, we'd say the maternal and the paternal function. Correct. And I often think that actually both roles in some ways exist with both mom and dad, yeah, you know. Um, and and I think that there is huge space for fathers to be maternal without you know without mm. feminizing them, but but to be warm and and soothing and comforting and and in fact, it's 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 often wonderful for moms and for babies to have a th- you know third person come in and be able to mm. take over and put to sleep and bath and 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 so it's almost the start of of, of the attachment. I mean we know that there isn't just one attachment that you have; you attach to all your caregivers. So I think it's it's to highlight that dads have a very important role to play, and it's not just in supporting mom. Yeah. But often, because of circumstances, we know that often mothers are the main caregivers. Often, um, and I think that that in, it, I think that you know part of the job of, of 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 a mom psychologically in pregnancy is to work as to almost reframe her identity. Yeah. You know, who am I going to be now? How is work going to fit into my life? How, what kind of mother do I want to be? And I guess what I would say to mums is it's worth spending the time during pregnancy thinking about it, working it out. And for those moms for whom that time gets cut short, like with prematurity, it's okay to say afterwards, I need time to work that out. I need time to think about it, whether I'm going to do that on my own, whether I'm going to get some support to do that. 
um, you know, to, and, and I think if, if you start that process, it then becomes easier to work out the kind of balance you want, as well as to manage what we were saying, those kinds of critical comments, if you are secure in yourself, the kind of mom you want to be, the kind of, you know, where, you're, where the rest of the family, work, you know, fits in, your work life fits in, it's worth spending time working that out. Nicole, on the 20th, in three days' time, you're launching a very exciting national campaign. So what can we expect from that campaign and, and where do we find it? Well, hopefully it's going to be everywhere. We're going to try and send it out as widely as possible and hopefully you guys will help us with that. Absolutely. Um, we're going to basically be launching a campaign for moms. It's a national campaign and it's really based on a message that says, you know, being a mom isn't always easy um, you know, society, it isn't always the fantasy society makes it out to be. A lot of moms get overwhelmed, they get anxious, they get depressed. And what we're wanting to do is really destigmatize that and, and, and talk about how common it is. I mean, in South Africa, one in three moms is, is really kind of, the, the stats is felt to be one in three moms suffers from postnatal depression, which is really a huge number. And then I guess we've recorded a song, which we're going to make, you know, be sending out. And, and, I, and we a big part of the campaign is wanting to put moms across the country in touch with where can they get help. Mm-hmm. So whether if you've got a medical aid and you want to be in touch with a psychiatrist, a psychologist, who's specializing in this? If you don't have a medical aid, you're making, you're making use of the NGO and um, governmental sector. Where can you get access to clinics? Where can you get access to NGOs that are doing this work? Across the country, where can you find a toll-free number? We're really wanting to, moms to say we support you and this is where you get the help that you need. That's so important, is where can I get the help that I need? And my last thing to land, which I think is probably maybe for the campaign or something we can talk about at a, at a later point, is sometimes you give birth to the child you didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And there's a level at which there is a real mourning by parents that we as a society don't allow people to acknowledge. So just maybe a, a thought on what it means to mourn the child you conceived in your mind who is different from the one you gave birth to. I think it's such a big and important thing yeah. you bring up, you know, especially if we think about prematurity, which sometimes comes with complications. Maybe you have a baby with CP, maybe you have a baby with, with limitations or cognitive challenges afterwards. Maybe you want it, maybe it's as simple as you wanted a girl and now you've got a boy. And I think that, that what, I mean, exactly what you're saying, there is a mourning that has to take place and it takes time. And I think that parents often, it, it links with attachment because parents often think I'm going to bond with my baby immediately or I need to bond with my baby immediately. And what we know is that's not true. It can take time. You, you, and sometimes it's aligned with that mourning process, you know. Um, it can take weeks and sometimes even months for you to fall in love with your baby, for you to even fall in like with your baby. And I think that as society, we're so judgmental of that. And if we could just step away and say, give moms support, allow them time and say, it can happen. And, and just to say, if it doesn't then happen, I would say it's very important for moms to reach out for support, start a process, because ultimately we know that attachment and bonding is very important. And if it's not happening naturally, that's okay. You might just need a little bit of support with it. So we've discussed kindness for World Kindness Day, and I think that is the most important thing. Be kind to yourself, be kind to your partner, be kind to your baby. You might not want to necessarily be kind to your baby. And for all of those of us who have experienced motherhood, be kind to new moms. They're learning and just be the support that perhaps they need rather than the support that you think that they need. Nicole, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so very much for chatting to us. Thank you so much for having me. We look forward to your uh, campaign and uh, it's interesting how the giving birth leads into our next podcast which is on Universal Children's Day 
on Friday the 20th of November and we're in conversation with Ngar, Ngar's for Women and Men Against Child Abuse and we're discussing children at risk and how to protect them. So please everybody subscribe today so that you don't miss a conversation. And Nicole, if I can just end in saying, we, you and I know over the years that it's not something you do with children that make a difference, it's everything. Thank you. Thanks so much.